Thank you, Priscilla, and welcome, church. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church. For those of you that are here in person, as well as for those who are watching us online, my name is Steve Myers, one of the elders. One of my tasks today is to highlight the uh, activities of the church on the bulletin. You probably received one as you walked in, so um, just to highlight that the Awana Awards Night is coming up this week. The ladies meet as regular on Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening. We have two ladies' Bible studies. Uh, be aware that uh, VBS is coming up in, uh, in July. And if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, that's where I'll be reading from. Uh, also want to uh, uh, say what a great time I know that was had by the ladies at the, uh, the ladies' brunch yesterday, as well as the, the men uh, at the pig roast last night. Had a, had a great time, um, and as usual, our pastor knocked it out of the park. First time ever doing a whole pig, almost perfect. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, that's it. I think that's uh, all the items I need to highlight. If there's nothing else, let's go to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It reads thus, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought, brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And thus says the word of God. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me. We'll pray together, and then we'll sing together. Father, we do uh, start our day at this point in time, praying to you, Lord, uh, for your blessing upon our service, for your blessing upon uh, those who are in attendance with us today and for those who are watching online. We know, Lord, that there are many issues to, with health, and uh, we ask for your blessing, your, your healing hand on those in our congregation and those watching that, uh, that need your care upon them, your, your, your Holy Spirit to touch them and to heal them and to use the doctors and nurses and those others involved in their care to uh, uh, make things right, Lord, to uh, solve the issues that we have health-wise. Father, I pray for our service today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might guide our hearts, open our hearts to the preaching of your word, and the singing of these songs. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us? Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, Mount of thy redeeming. 
prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted redeemed by his grace let the house of the lord sing praise sing it out we were the beggars now we're singing over me and I just want to sing along because mercy is a song freedom is a cry swaying back and forth shining in the shadow of a stained glass Sunday morning shouting hallelujah yesterday is gone freedom is a choir. Mercy is a song Singing Oh There is a life for every soul No matter where you've been Just come on home Let all God's children sing along Hallelujah, chains are gone Mercy is a song, and guilty is 
And after what you've done, you don't deserve to be free But I can look him in the eye And say this time you're wrong Cause guilty is a lie But mercy is a song in the sky that one day we'll be singing with those angels up on high and that old familiar melody like we've known it all along heaven is a mansion and mercy is a song heaven is a mansion and mercy is a song
may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy Sunday. It's, not a, it's actually still Easter. If we were liturgical, we would just say, He is risen. That fits too, doesn't it? Every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series, but I have a little bit of slightly sad news this morning, and I promise I was only going to embarrass her a little. But Toby, you're drinking coffee, and you're not able to raise your hand and drink coffee. Toby is skipping town. She's leaving us for a Blanco. Toby, would you wave your hand over there? Toby's been serving faithfully in various ministries around here and been a, a joy to have. She's, she's leaving. She's going back to Blanco. Uh, I, maybe Monday if the truck is back together, Colby. All right. But the truck is going to be back together soon, and she's leaving. So make sure you say bye to her. Uh, she'll be back to visit, I'm sure, once or twice. But um, we're going to miss her, so make sure you do that. Is that, do I need to embarrass you more? Is that good enough, Toby? That's good enough. That's good enough. Okay. Yeah. All right. So children, you guys can go to children's church. Remember that Explorers, which is our older group from like third to fifth grade goes over here and everybody younger than that goes there and you can always stay with your parents. All right. Does that cover all the options? All right. Good. Well, open your Bibles to First Thessalonians. We're excited. We're getting to the last few verses of this book, but we are going to continue into 2 Thessalonians um, unless something changes radically. Uh, that's my intention. So we're going to do that. Uh, but remember with it, we are in a particular portion of Thessalonians, right? And we're talking about God's will for our lives, or God's will specifically for the Thessalonians' lives, who are strictly analogous to us in that they are believers in Jesus Christ that are indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. They are members of the church. And so it's reasonable to say these instructions are for us and to us. And we're between two sets of bookends. Uh, and those bookends are discussing sanctification, the setting apart of the believer unto the Lord's commandments, away from certain things. Sexual immorality was one of those, adultery, those sorts of things, and unto many others. Um, and people get hung up on the things that, that the Bible tells them not to do, and pound for pound in the New Testament, there's a whole lot of do this instead of don't do that. But there are some don'ts. I was told once by a much more experienced preacher before I was a little bit more experienced that I needed to stop make, saying all those negative things. I was preaching a passage about Jacob and Esau, a little different than First Thessalonians. If you don't say some negative things about Jacob and Esau, you're not preaching it right. Right? You can't not say some negative things. You're doing an injustice to the text if all you say is encouraging Skittles from that passage. Just throw people some fluff and they'll be happy. I won't do that. I promise you I won't do that. But we're here and we had some negative, positive commands. I'm talking mostly about those in recent weeks. And so we want a complete answer. It's been a list, right? Um, and some people give an incomplete answer when we're talking about sanctification. I've alluded to this occasionally, and that is what role that we have in it. And of course, there are some people that say that we have no role in it whatsoever, that God's grace is always and in every context, in every situation, it is irresistible, right? You might even say inexorable, that it will come into your life no matter what you do and what you decide and 
what you woke up deciding to do this morning. I think that's probably overstated. Other people will say that you are sanctified when you obey the commands that Christ has given us. I think that's also incomplete. Is that okay? Whose are you? That's a possessive. To whom do you belong? As a believer in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit as the church, who do you belong to? Christ. Is Christ absolutely faithful? The answer is yes. Maybe y'all didn't grow up in Sunday school. The answer to that one is yes. But we won't take what is called a monergistic view because that's not what Scripture takes right? If there was a monergistic view, that means that God is the only one acting in all aspects of how you relate to Him, then the New Testament, the vast majority of it really doesn't need to exist, right? Because it's inexorable. It's irresistible. All of God's grace in your life just comes to you because God has declared it thus. And of course, God would declare it thus. That's what the theologians say. Thus and manifest. They use words like that. So do I. That's why I can make fun of them. Like, I can make fun of rednecks because I'm a redneck. I can make fun of hillbillies because I'm part hillbilly. Make fun of theologians because I got a little theologian in there. The truth is, is that God works in his children's lives regardless of whether they obey or disobey. He does think that's God's will for your life. The issue is, what, how are you going to respond to the Spirit's work in your life? It is analogous to a parent-child relationship. Um, Priscilla and I have a few kids. And early on when we had just really a few kids, I remember having a conversation with her. And I said, "The, the biggest fear that I have, the biggest fear that I have in raising children is not the world that they're being raised in. We know where that's headed, and we know what the resolution is, right? Everyone's worried about the world. I can't bring children into this world. Quit crying and get about your business with Jesus Christ. My biggest concern with children, and we had started with two of them, so I had to get double the concern double quickly, was that they would grow up to be useless in biblically defined terms. You know, like James talks about your faith being useless without profit. You want to know what a pandemic is? A multi-generational pandemic in Western civilization? That's the one. A lot of useless people live in their life without profit, without a desire to profit in the things that the Lord has asked them to, in the church especially. That was my greatest concern. Not that they would suffer. Has any, can anyone live in this life without suffering? No matter how hard they try, no. Can you have difficulty? Can you do it without confrontation? No. And I think that's analogous. 
to what Christ is doing in our lives. He will bring us, He will bring His will about in our lives, God's will for our lives, Christ's will for our lives, through our disobedience and our obedience. But I can speak from experience as a parent now of 21 years that it is far more pleasant for the child to be sanctified, as it were, through obedience. I made sure of that as a father. Right, boys? Yes, boys? Amen? I got a few boys in here. They're not going to amen that, but they know it's true. I committed to making that true to the best of my ability. And Christ is committed to doing that. The reason he gives you the commands, rejoice always, don't abandon prayer, and everything give thanks, were the most recent ones, is because it is desirable for you to be sanctified through obedience. He will sanctify you through discipline, but he'd rather do it through your obedience. As any parent in here could attest, right? You would prefer to do it that way. You would prefer to parent your child and bring them the blessings of obedience. So that's what we're doing here, right? That's our choice. Whether we're going to be sanctified through the blessings of obedience or the reality of discipline in our life. And last week we did. We looked at a few of those ways. Rejoice unceasingly. Do not abandon prayer. And in everything, in everything, give thanks. And here we have another one because this is where the bullet points come into First Thessalonians. I like that all right because those are the important things here. But it says in verse 19, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Probably the charismatic's favorite verse in the whole New Testament. Right, Jacob? Don't quench that Spirit. It's in the Bible. Don't quench it. Charismatic's favorite verse. Maybe the one verse that gets the uh, traditional dispensational Bible church members' knickers in a twist faster than any other. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't. Because people don't understand it, right? The charismatics wouldn't love it near as much, and people wouldn't get their knickers in a twist near as fast. They understood the verse. Probably in the top five for a cessationist. Uh, to argue about, I'd say, over time. Don't quench the Spirit. I say that just because, you know, somebody told me before I became a pastor, he said, and this applies all over, but he said it's impossible to make everyone happy, but it's real easy to tick everybody off. I'm just saying that might be an issue today. I don't know. I might tick all of you off. That's okay. Pastoral work has been described as sanctified agitation. So, with that in mind, let's proceed. Let's start from the back of this verse. Don't quench the Spirit. Every once in a while you hear someone explaining this verse, and they, they try to explain it, well, it's, it's just wrong, but it, it, it ignores the language. But there's an article there. We call that an articular reference, an articular noun, definite article, the Spirit, 
Because, you know, each of us has a spirit. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians. He refers to the spirit, the soul, and the body. Tripartite reference. You do have a spirit. It's the thing that animates you. And you're not unique. There are spirits that animate other things in that regard. It's life. But some people say that this is the animating immaterial portion of the person, of the human. And it's talking about what people do in the local church. And basically, when, when Paul is saying, don't quench the spirit, they say that that means uh, something similar to when you hear somebody say, that, I don't want to squash that child's spirit. You ever heard the enlightened parents say that? I've told you I'm a caveman parent. I'm not an enlightened parent in those terms. I don't want to squash his spirit. I don't want to break that spirit of that child. That's not what this means. I don't want to squash his creativity is what they mean by that. As I mentioned, Priscilla and I have a few children, a couple, six, and they've all made it thus far. They're alive, all of them. I've had to do a lot of funerals. I haven't had to do a funeral for my children, praise God. You know why? Because when it needed to be done, I squashed their creativity. Because that needs to be done sometimes. Their creativity could be dang near suicidal with five sons in the house. I squashed that creativity and thus they are still breathing. By analogy, the leadership of this church occasionally has to squash some creativity because it's dangerous. Yeah? The loudest squawking we get sometimes is when we have to do that. It's also the loudest squawking that I had for my children sometimes. That's okay. You want to keep them alive, sometimes you've got to squash their creativity. But it's not talking about your spirit. You have a spirit, but it's not your spirit. It's not my spirit. It's not the Thessalonican spirit or Paul's spirit. It's the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. The third person of the Trinity. The third person of the Godhead. God the Spirit. Part of the a person of the Trinity, the seal over us until the day of redemption, right? That spirit. Now, that's, that's remarkable. Don't quench the third person of the Trinity. Some of y'all are kind of theologically oriented. That's kind of a traumatic statement. Am I able as a human being to extinguish the Holy Spirit? Am I able to? The term is to put out a fire. Now, yesterday we roasted a little pig. Actually, I roasted a little pig. You guys ate it. When we were done eating the pig and we were done eating the baked potatoes and we were done drinking a couple of brews, or lemonade or tea. We had that too. I went out to the trailer and we were talking about motorcycles or whatever. And I was getting ready to leave. 
And I went and put my hand not on but close to the smoker, and I realized that that fire was unquenched. So the trailer stayed there overnight. I was afraid I'd melt the strap, and then, well, El Paso County's finest would find my smoker on the side of the road leaking, you know, embers all over the, the street. Didn't want to do that. That's the language. It's about putting out a fire, right, uh, in somebody, on somebody Put out a fire, quench, extinguish the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Could be a disturbing command. Can I do that? Do I have the power? Well, Paul says don't do it. And, and Paul uses an economy of language. You may not realize it. It's implicit in Scripture, and that is that he doesn't bother giving you a negative command for things that you can't do. That makes sense? I never told my kids, don't dig to China. I did tell them, no, you can't fly, because they were doing things that they would need to fly to survive. Remember, I squashed creativity when it needed to be done. What does it mean to quench the Spirit? Well, I think it means that you extinguish not, not His existence, certainly not, but His work in our lives. Most of the time, the picture of that spirit is a fire, right? You've seen depictions of it in different stories throughout Scripture where the spirit's presence is evident. And you see it as a, as a fire, as a sign, an indication that the spirit is present. And Paul is telling those believers who, who had only had limited instruction but were rapidly moving through an understanding of Scripture all the way up into prophetic events. I mean, it's really remarkable how rapidly they incorporated and understood and internalized the truths of Scripture. He's saying, don't, don't do that. Don't rebel against or extinguish the Spirit's work in your life. We shouldn't do that. Now, I take that as something personal, uh, individual. In other words, most of the time that I've had somebody, and I have had it happen, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't quench my spirit. I cannot squash or extinguish or quench the Spirit's work in your life. I can't do that. You can. I can squash the Spirit's work in my life. I can do that. You can do it for yourself. And what Paul is saying to the brethren, guys, don't do that. Let the Spirit work in your life. Let it accomplish the work that He wants to do. We need to, to distinguish that, right? Because there are times we need to understand what the command is. The command is to you individually. Do not quench the Spirit's work in each of your lives because there is another dynamic in Scripture, isn't there, right? And that is order in the corporate worship service right? We have a different uh, manifestation of the Spirit in Scripture in the corporate worship service. I'm not supposed to quench the Spirit's work in my life. You're not supposed to quench the Spirit's work in your life, but we need to distinguish that from our responsibility to the local church as a corporate whole 
Because there are times where the elders of a church, the leaders of a church, are required to prohibit certain expressions of the Spirit's work in the worship service. Not just moderate them, but to stop them. And that's why 1 Corinthians 14 is in my Bible. In a corporate environment, in a worship service together, there are times, and Paul doesn't in 1 Corinthians 14, he does not say, that's not legitimate. That's not the Spirit. He doesn't say that. He does not say that when people are speaking in tongues in the worship service, that that's not the Holy Spirit. He does not say that. You won't find it. He does not argue that it's not a legitimate expression of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life. He says that that is out of order. That's what he says. So there would be times, and he says, don't let that happen. Two to three at most, and there needs to be an interpreter present. So is it a legitimate work of the Spirit in their lives? The answer is yes. And there are times where the leadership of a church needs to prohibit that particular legitimate expression of the Holy Spirit's work. Stop it. Make sense? Yeah? No? You can argue with me later. Paul doesn't say that, that it's illegitimate. He says that that use is illegitimate. So we need to do that. In other words, there are times where the elders of El Paso Bible Church may be called upon to say, this is not, this is not productive to the order of worship corporately in the church. And so we're going to have to stop that. Because people can use, and we've talked about this, they can use the gifts that they've been given by the Spirit improperly. Happens all the time. It is way worse than any destruction that any unbeliever can wreak in a church, by the way. You're basically walking around with superpowers. And if you're not using them the way that Christ wants them to be used, you will be way worse, way worse and destructive to a local church than anybody else could possibly be. Pastors included, elders included. We're not exempt from that. But in your life, And in my life, we're not supposed to quench the Spirit's work. I'm not supposed to do that. You're supposed to let the fire do its work, right? The picture here is common in Scripture of the Spirit's presence being a fire. I understand it to be a refining. Since we're in the the bookends of sanctification, right, we're talking about extinguishing the Spirit, which is literally putting coals out that I think that image is appropriate. It's a refining fire, a process that that brings us towards a simplicity of composition of Christ's purpose in this life. Last summer, Priscilla and I went to, uh, I forget the name of that gold mine where we were. Remember the name of the gold mine? We went to a hard rock gold mine, solid granite. Um, some people accuse me of being claustrophobic occasionally. I'm not because I went down a thousand feet in an elevator meant for nine people with, you know, six people in it. It was really tight. All the way down. And when you leave the mine, they give you a piece of gold ore. It's like a rock. Looks like what we'd use for landscaping here in El Paso. This has gold in it. And so how hot do you have to heat it to get the gold out of it? 
it was 2,200 degrees. I said, well, good deal. I've got a furnace in my backyard. I can do that. And the guy looked at me like I was completely off my rocker. And I might be. If you heat things up as hot as my forge can make it in the backyard, you drop a piece of steel, it will burn the dirt. Like, you don't have to have anything that you would normally consider flammable. You just drop it, it hits that oxygen and goes. Whatever, I mean, I don't know if it's straight dirt, organic material in that soil will light up on fire. Refining fire, destructive fire, guess what? It's all hot. All hot. Good fire is hot, bad fire is hot. Yeah? How do you know which fire you're supposed to put out and which one you're not? Scripture says that you can burn with other things. If two young people are burning, they're supposed to get married, burning with a passion, a lust. They're supposed to get married, burn with other things. How do you know which fire to quench and which one not to in your life? Well, you need to know how the Spirit works in your life so that you can identify what fire it is that you're supposed to let it burn, let it do, do its job, right? If it's, uh, well. So how would you do that? You need to properly identify how the Spirit works in your life. How does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit work? We can start with the one that nobody likes. The Spirit works through suffering in your life. The Spirit works through suffering in your life. I imagine Joel Osteen doesn't get these looks. Joel's not the worst guy out there, by the way. I'm just saying, I don't think he gets these kind of looks. The Spirit works through suffering in your life. James tells us, right, that we're supposed to let endurance have its perfect result. You're supposed to engage endurance when you get suffering. It's supposed to have a result in your life to produce something in your life that you cannot have produced any other way but to submit yourself to the process of suffering. That takes some discipline in your life, doesn't it? What's your first response? Something simple. Well, something simple to people who grew up in a shop where everything cut your arm off. Lose me. What happens if you, you ever snag your fingernail on a piece of formica? That's nothing, but what do you do? 
A lot of people, because I've had to rip those countertops out. Johnson, you probably had this experience. You probably got a piece of formica under your fingernail. I know people that will walk off the job because they got their fingernail poked by a piece of formica. Me and Johnson, we put duct tape on it and go back to work. Ryan, you probably had the same situation. By the end of the day, you could have 14 Band-Aids on various parts of your body, but you still got to pay the mortgage, right? Your, our culture celebrates a life that is free from suffering. They think you've been wise. They think you've been amazingly intellectual in the way you have planned and strategized your life, when in fact you've decided to be weak. There is no one, there is no one who will stand at the Bema seat and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, who has not suffered as a servant. That is the illustration we have in Christ who himself is the suffering servant. If you want to be sanctified, don't quench the spirit. Allow him to work through suffering if needed. Through fellowship, where we have a responsibility the commands in this part of Thessalonians are given to the brethren, given to the body, right? You're supposed to honor those who work among you. And this, this should go without saying, but the people who work among you have to be among you, right? Live stream ain't going to cut it forever. Got to be among you. Fellowship plays a part in that. Eyeballs within the local church. Fellowship does that. And if you fail to fellowship regularly, you can quench the Spirit's work in your life. The Word of God does it. It's the way the Spirit works. A lot of Bible church people put that one first. I could actually put the Bible under suffering. I have a lot of friends that are acclaimed as, as preachers because about seven out of eight messages, they end up weeping by the end of their sermon. And then people look at me and say, Pastor Josh, you never cry. That's a lie. That's not true. I don't cry up here. If you want to suffer in your life, make it your vocation to study Scripture. Scripture has a vocation in your life, by the way. It has a function, and the Word works in your life. And if you abandon it, you will quench the Spirit's work. Prayer, work itself, the way you approach the job and the task that you've been given, don't do that faithfully, you'll quench the Spirit's work in your life. A long list of them here in Thessalonians and throughout, but failing to submit ourselves to these processes will quench the Spirit. 
in our lives. That's not something that I can do to you. I've, I've been accused of quenching somebody's spirit before. Um, it's not even possible. If you get to the point that you have dealt with all the ways that you quench the spirit in your life and you feel that you can truthfully accuse me of quenching your spirit, maybe, but let, that's going to be a long list. All of us have so many ways where we quench the Spirit's work in our lives. Do not quench the Spirit. And do not despise prophecies. Don't despise prophecies. My NASB takes it a step further and says prophetic utterances. I think that's a little far, actually. Most of the time, it's just prophecies, prophetia. It's the feminine noun. The masculine noun refers to the prophet. The feminine noun refers to what the prophet speaks or writes or communicates. But it's not specifically a verbal proclamation, and that's what NASB has made it. The New King James just says prophecies, and I think that's best. Do not despise prophecies. Now, understand, Paul is not dealing with who is a prophet here. He is not dealing with the legitimacy of one prophet over another or how you decide who's a prophet and who's not. Doesn't do that. There are some decent standards and decent cautions in Scripture for determining who and who's a prophet and who is not. And most of them involve execution at the end if they're not a prophet, right? That's okay. But that's not the topic here. How to distinguish a prophet from not a prophet. Do not despise prophecies. Legitimate, actual, biblical prophecies that meet the standard of biblical truth. Now, that may sound silly to you. Why would Paul have to tell somebody not not to despise prophecies? Because in our world, right, all you got to do, I mean, at least in our microcosm here, you got to put apostle slash prophet on your business card and you can grow your church. That's like El Paso Church Growth Method, right? Paul is saying, don't don't despise prophecies in the, in the Bible. The Thessalonians were suffering at certain points in their life because somebody had told them the day of the Lord already came. That's somebody who despises prophecy. Somebody who's not taking the Bible seriously when it says this is the characteristics of the day of the Lord and this is who's going to be here and this is who's not going to be here. You need to understand those things. He's not talking about the guy on TV who says that if you send me a Mercedes, I'll send you a Land Rover, who says if you send me 10 grand, I'll send you a million dollars. That's self-evidently garbage, okay? That's not a prophecy. You can despise that or not. I suggest you do. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the legitimate prophecies, the revealed Word of God. And there were people, and there are people who despise them in the church. People are going to go to heaven when they die and shirk back at the Bema. 
because of the way that they treated Christ in this life by despising the prophecies about his coming. Because he's talking to the church, right? Y'all missed that? Y'all, did y'all forget that part? I've talked about how important audience is, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. Oops, that was actually Colossians. Sorry, I skipped one page. It doesn't matter. All of the epistles are written here. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace. What is the church, people? Believers in Jesus Christ, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, waiting for the rapture of Jesus Christ, right? That's who we are. And he's having to tell those people who are looking, the very next prophetic event that they're looking for is the rapture. He just clarified that in previous chapters. And he's saying this, do not succumb to the temptation to despise the prophecies of Scripture, the actual ones. Not whoever the guy is lately on TV or the radio or whatever. We need to hold them in the proper regard, right? The actual, valid, biblical, legitimate prophecies. We've talked about them in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord, the rapture. We recently went through Daniel and Revelation in Sunday school. But listen, it is, those are the ones everyone thinks of. Those are the biggies, right? Revelation? Oh, who would despise Revelation? I think the estimate is that 30% of Scripture was a direct prophecy at the time it was written. 30%. There are prophecies that you don't even consider prophecies that are not in that number. When Paul tells people, do not continue to defraud your brothers in this, for the Lord is the avenger, what is he saying? He's pronouncing a prophecy, isn't he? If you continue to defraud your brother, Jesus Christ's discipline is going to come to bear in your life. That's future. Even by a narrow definition of prophecy, that's a prophecy. Just go try preaching that out in the world. No, it's not okay if you're just two consenting adults doing whatever you want. You're defrauding your brother and it matters to Jesus. See, I'm not even a prophet and I can speak prophecy, right? You can speak prophecy as long as it's in Scripture. Don't do that. Even ones we don't recognize. And when I use the word fashionable, realize that I buy my clothes at Tractor Supply. Okay? I don't give two flips about fashionable. I wear the same shirts I've been wearing since 1983, just bigger. So when I say that it is fashionable, you're not, you're, I'm not commending it, okay? It is fashionable in the church to just simply say that there is no prophecy left to be fulfilled. Some of them, except for the return of Jesus Christ. That's called partial preterism. Full preterism says that the return of Christ happened in you when the Holy Spirit came into your heart, and we're not supposed to look for the physical return of Christ. 
Y'all look at me like I'm a nutter when I say that, and I'm thankful for that because it is nuttery. But it is fashionable nuttery, and it is growing in influence, usually coupled with some sort of dressed-up, frosted, socialist, woke garbage coming from thousands of pulpits across this country. To read the prophecies of Scripture and to say that they are all fulfilled is to despise them. It's despicable and foolish. The terrible... Imagine what you're saying. You're saying something that the Scripture calls the blessed hope already happened. People think, I'm a pessimist. (laughs) The definition of hope is being able to look at the future with a smile, virtually. I mean, that's that's an anecdotal definition, right? Maybe not a theological. It is not the manifest thus definition. But it is a definition, and you can't do it if you have people that despise prophecy to come to pass in the future. Imagine reaching the apex of pessimism where you believe that the blessed hope is in the past. Foolishness. So if we permit ourselves to despise that much of Scripture or to even be tempted down that road, we shouldn't surprise us that our sanctification might take place a little differently, huh? If we, we don't look forward to the promises that Scripture gives us for the future with optimism and hope and longing and expectation, it might change how we are to be sanctified in this life we placed ourselves in a position where the only thing that Christ can offer us is correction. I don't know how many people you've had to correct in your life. Does it go over well? Is that the easy road? No. It's not the easy road. It's not easy road for the one being corrected. There are people out there who are known who are in writing for preaching and teaching doctrinal error for decades, and they have been repeatedly confronted by it, and you have to wonder if they simply can't repent because of embarrassment. That's a powerful feature in your life, isn't it? You don't have to agree. I know humanity well enough to know that it is a powerful impetus in life to resist correction and to resist repentance. Simple embarrassment. It is for me. Could be. God will sanctify us, whether it is the rough road or the smooth road. That's His will for our lives. So instead of quenching the spirit, we're going to fan the flame, right? Right? We're going to look at life and know that suffering is coming, and we're going to smile and know that the spirit works through it. 
We're going to go and fellowship in the local church even though we know that there's a bunch of hypocrites there. It's the only option God has in the earth is to deal with hypocrites with broken families, broken past, genealogy looks like a train wreck. Even the faith, most faithful among us. So we're going to fellowship with each other. Let the Spirit work there. We're going to l- let the Word work. Let the Spirit work through the Word in our lives, even if it breaks us. I'm going to pray. Because we want to be sanctified further, we're going to love prophecy and not despise it. Love prophecy. Love the Word. Love the future and not despise it. Yes? I've just committed that to you in front of you again. They basically demand that of you at Dallas Seminary. So I did a long time ago, but I'm doing it here for you now, and I ask that you commit it to it with me, that we're going to love the words of prophecy in Scripture and let it do its work. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the gift of a future that we have by virtue of being in Christ, in your Son. That's our identity in whom we have life simply by grace through faith. We thank you that you have made explicit your will for our lives, that we don't have to dance around like a bunch of pagans cutting ourselves, hoping to hear one little word from you, but that we have this whole book of words of truth to know you better. As Paul has said, to know the power of the resurrection, to know what is to come. We love you for it. And every day we're further understanding the privilege that it is to be your child. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Just stand with us. We'll dismiss with a song. There's joy in the house of the Lord.